This morning's scripture is from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be the first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, you know, we, we tend to like to debate who we think is the greatest. Maybe it's in athletics or in politics or in intelligence or military strategists, but we love to debate who is the greatest. Now, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, that list came out um, regarding the, the 100 greatest people in the last millennium. And uh, on that list, of course, some names you might be familiar, some names you might not. Gutenberg was the first one. He's the inventor of the printing press, Isaac Newton, Martin Luther, Charles Darwin, William Shakespeare. These are some of the names of those that we would look back over the thousand years and say they were great in their field and in their time. They, they really had a huge impact on our world. How would you define greatness? What would you say makes a person great? Who's great in your eyes and what makes them so? You know, it might surprise you to know that that Christianity is all about greatness. It's about us being great, uh, but a different great. Now, Jesus doesn't condemn greatness in our passage. He just kind of corrects our view of it. And so Charles Spurgeon, when he preached on this passage, in Matthew at least, the parallel passage, he said that the apostles needed a conversion. Now, they had already been converted, but <clears throat> they needed kind of another conversion in the sense of of picking up the wisdom of God's kingdom on greatness rather than the wisdom of the world. Their wisdom needed to be converted. See, in our day, in our time, the wisdom of this world regarding greatness is we think of power, we think of influence, we think of prestige, recognition, we think of production, success. Jesus defines it very differently. He defines it as radical love, laying down your rights, sacrificing yourself for the betterment of another? It's a whole different category. It, it, it's, it almost spins everything on its head. For us to understand greatness from Jesus' point, it turns everything upside down. So here's how I want to look at the passage with you. I, I, three points would be, <clears throat> first, he's going to challenge us on our understanding of greatness. So Jesus will challenge our view of greatness. And then secondly, He's going to change our view. You're going to see in the text, he's going to draw them to himself. He's going to change our view on greatness. And then he's, thirdly, he's going to call us to walk in light of it. 
He's going to call us to be great. He's going to actually call us to be great. Wants us to be great. Okay, so first, challenging our view of greatness. Now, we didn't read it, but in a few verses before our passage, Jesus, for the third time, said that he was going to die. But this time, it's a bit different. He adds some graphic details. He's going to be mocked, he's going to be scourged, and he's going to be crucified. So when you know that, it really puts in relief almost the lunacy of James and John going for the top spots when they've just heard that he's going to be crucified. But that's what they do. They go after the top spots. Look with me at 35 to 37. He says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, just as a free piece of advice, that isn't the way to go about prayer. Just for the record, I mean, if you're going to do it, if you're going to be bold in prayer, that would not be, that would not be boldness. Jesus graciously, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Now, you understand, we don't have to be from an Eastern culture to understand that the seat at the right and the left, those are high positions, right? You've got the king's ear, you have his influence. People see you up there, so it's a place of recognition, it's a place of respect. It's, everybody else looks at those at the right and the left, and they, they must be a great person. So it's a place of greatness. Uh, that's what they were going for. They wanted the top two slots after, after Jesus. What you don't know, though, and it's in Matthew's Gospels, it's actually it's worse than that. Uh, they asked, James and John asked their mother in um, Matthew chapter 20 to go up. And it says in Matthew chapter 20 that their mother kneeled before Jesus and asked for these spots. Now, why did they ask their mother? Probably to divert any negative attention if the request was denied. Uh, but it also could be that most commentators think that the mother of James and John was actually Mary's sister. So it would have been, it would have been uh, Jesus' aunt. And we have the expression, it's not what you know, it's who you know. So maybe they were leveraging this kind of relationship, thinking, hey, we'll jump ahead of Peter. Peter's already been rebuked a couple times by this time in the gospel. Maybe we'll jump ahead of Peter and get in those first two slots. But it shows you the ugliness of selfish ambition where you're willing to climb the backs of people that know you and that you love just to get ahead. And by the way, if they aren't the only two eggs, bad eggs in the dozen. The other ten are indignant. They're angry, perhaps because they wish they asked first. I mean, they all won at those spots. It really shows you the ugliness of, of ambition. And so Jesus challenges them. And, and, and he challenges their superficial view of the kingdom, that a kingdom's going to come without any cost. Look with me at 38 to 41. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drank or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Yeah, we're able. Now, now they're just putting their ignorance on display here. Uh, when, when Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup? Now, that's an Old Testament expression. It's a metaphor for God's judgment being poured out upon people. Uh, so you hear about the cup of wrath being poured out on the nations. That God has a legitimate right to punish sin in his creation, and it's going to come about by a righteous judgment on the world. And it's often termed as the wrath of God being poured out of a cup. 
Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane, let this cup pass by me. So Jesus is saying, you don't understand what you're talking about. And baptism is another metaphor. So think about baptism. We do them. You go under the water. You're submerged. And so what he is saying here is Jesus says, I'm going to be submerged in agony and suffering and trial as I bear your sins. In other words, these disciples didn't understand that there's a cross before a crown. There is suffering before there's glory as we follow Christ. That's a hard message to understand. Now, before we just cast them aside as just dim-witted fools, it is a hard thing to grasp. We don't think of the Christian faith being marked by that. We don't think that way. We think better. We think you know, healthier. We think stronger. We don't think suffering. Uh, so, so Jesus is challenging each one of us, uh, first on our view of greatness, we all want to be great. Oh, we, we do. I mean, we, we don't want to stand up here and say it, but let me do it for you. We all want to be great. We want to be thought well of. We want to be promoted. I mean, it is across ages and times, right? I mean, it doesn't matter if it's an ancient kingdom or a modern-day boardroom. People want to be seen as great. We do. We, we want to be seen as having it all together. We think our opinions are great. Whatever we think about COVID, I, we know the answer. You know the answer, right? We, even though it's a, a very multifaceted, complex issue, but we all know, this is what I think, or politics, or the economy. We all have those thoughts of, yeah, my thoughts are great. Now, we've taken self-promotion to, really, we've made it an art form, I think, with Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Here's my great family, and here's my great vacation, and here are my great children, and here's my great house. I'm not saying that all our communications on these different mediums are, are bad, uh, but, but they do become platforms for us to keep promoting who we are. You don't see disasters and suffering on it. You just generally see the good stuff. We want to be great. We want people to think really highly of us. We want to really be appreciated. So assess yourself for just a minute in terms of you know, how much effort do you make or how present is it in your life? So if, if there's a picture handed to you and you're in the picture, who do you look at first? Don't we look at ourselves? Or how often do we try to take a conversation and kind of direct the conversation back to something that you did or I did or something that I was successful at? Or how much resentment or frustration do we have uh, when someone else is being commended and thought well of and, and nothing is said about us? Now, this isn't just a secular problem. This is the problem in the church. This is really fundamental to every human being, that lurking deep within each one of our hearts, we want to be great. might even say we want to be like God. We need to be aware of this. You know, our sins have to be exposed first before they can be removed. We have to know about these things. Thomas Herker was a Puritan. He wrote these words. He says, pride is a vice which cleaves so fast into the heart of men and women that if we were to strip ourselves of all faults, one by one, we should undoubtedly find it to be the very last and hardest to put off. Spurgeon, in his own, in his own way, said that pride will go out with my last breath. We'll struggle with it. We have a hard time with it. So this is a challenge. How do you define greatness? How do you define it? Do you define it along the world's terms? Success, accolades, accomplishments, respect, followers. It's going to be challenged. 
just like theirs was. But also, <clears throat> there's a challenge here about our own understanding of the nature of the kingdom. Does your understanding of the kingdom have a large place for struggle and suffering in terms of our self-denial? In other words, a lot of people, these I take some comfort from these apostles. They are apostles, for, for goodness sake. I mean, there they are. They have true belief that his kingdom's coming. They said it. So they have a belief in the Messiah who's going to come in glory, and yet at the same time, they're confused. They don't want the cross. They don't want suffering. They want to take, just give me number one and number two. And J.C. Rawl had this to say in his commentary on Matthew. He says, there are few Christians who do not resemble James and John when they first begin service of Christ. We are apt to expect far more present enjoyment from our religion than the Gospels warrant us to expect. We are apt to forget the cross and the tribulation and to think only of the crown. We form an incorrect estimate of our own fortitude and power of endurance. We misjudge our own ability to stand temptation and trial. And the result of all is that we often buy wisdom very dearly by bitter experience after many disappointments and not a few falls. We tend to forget that the path of Jesus leads us through trial and adversity. It's through persecution that we enter the hardships, that we enter the kingdom of God. So that's where he, do you feel challenged by this? Do you need to rethink your view of greatness? Do you need to rethink your view of the kingdom? Well, you know, Jesus said, you want to count the cost before becoming my disciple. Uh, this might be a challenge to you. Or it might be a time of actually just repenting that you have kind of bought in uh, to the definition that the world gives of greatness. Maybe you've spent a lot of years pursuing that path of what is great. And now you stand here and find that it's really opposite from what Jesus is telling us. Well, well confess, repent. Repentance is a gift of God given to the church to keep our consciences clear before God and man. So that's the first thing. He challenges us regarding our view of greatness. Then he changes it. Now look with me at 42 to 45. He says, Jesus called them to him, to himself, and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I, I think Jesus is kind of like a coach here. You know, a coach will often call a timeout during, let's say, a basketball game, and he gathers all the players around him, and he, he's trying to get them thinking straight here. He's trying to reorient them to uh, whatever new part of the game. Maybe they've uh, you know, the other team has had a run of points or something like that, but he, he's trying to regather them. He draws them to himself, and he wants to tell them, he says, this isn't the way. You know how the Gentiles do it. You know how the world views greatness. They view greatness by power, not by submission. They view greatness by being honored, not honoring. They view greatness by being served, not serving. Uh, they, they look at greatness as, what have you done? And what have you accomplished? And what are you producing? It's not so among you. That, that's not the way Christ views greatness in his kingdom. No, he says, it's not so. If you want to be great, you've got to be a servant. If you want to be first, you've got to be a slave of all, is what he's saying. He's giving us a measurement that is absolutely counterintuitive. A, a measurement by how Christ views greatness is by this 
sacrificial service, laying down the rights, denying ourselves what we may feel we are entitled to, so as to help somebody with the gifts or the talents or the treasures that we have to help someone else out in the faith, or even outside the faith, to serve them in a self-denying way. William Lane, a commentator on the Gospel of Mark, said, this is the reversal, this is the reversal of all human ideas of greatness and rank. It was achieved when Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus himself said in Luke 22, for who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You know, this word for serve is our word for deacon. And the definition, or at least the root word, of, of deacon is dust. You know, kind of like the dust that's kicked up as servants are scurrying about the kitchen trying to prepare food. This is the kind of service we're talking about. I mean, just regular, good old, self-denying, serving another person. It may be listening. It may be working. It may be, may be doing something Whatever their needs are, it's seeking to serve them for the sake of Christ. So that's what Jesus is saying is great. But he goes on from there, and he talks about his service as a giving of himself, or, or laying down his life, or, or giving himself as a ransom. Now, I want you to understand this with me. Jesus was not killed as if you know, he was caught up in some political scheme where he loses his life. Jesus didn't die by accident. It wasn't some tragic accident. Jesus intended to come and die. He intended to, to give his life as a ransom. Now, ransom, that's not really a theological term. It's more of a marketplace term. It was used if you were going to buy a slave out of slavery. A price would be paid, and, and they would then have their freedom. Or, or a prisoner of war. Uh, they might be paid, the opposing army, to rescue the soldier from being a prisoner. Now, there is nothing in the text that would seem to indicate that Jesus was some ransom given to Satan to relieve him or to rescue him. That, that's not even part of the passage. Uh, what we see here in the text is that Jesus is offering himself to God as a payment uh, for the price of our sins. Our sins, what we have lived, what we've done, what we've thought, they've incurred a massive debt with the one to whom has given us life. We are indebted to God because of our rejection of him, our rebellion to him, our, our treating him with ambivalence. That's created a debt no one here can pay back. And so Jesus offers himself as payment for the price of our debt. That's what he's speaking about. He's giving himself as a ransom that we might be rescued. So that God could be just in punishing our sin and yet the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. That Jesus will, will stand in our stead. You see the substitutional language when he, it says, for the many. This isn't universalism. Jesus didn't die and there's a blanket salvation policy for everybody. It's for the many. Those with faith in Christ. But you see the substitution. Jesus stood in our stead. So this passage ought to draw your mind back to Isaiah 53, where we read these words. He says, and, and listen to the substitution here. He says, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now listen to verse 12. He says, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great. Christ is great. How so? Why, you ask? Well, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many. He bore the sin. Jesus is fulfilling the servant song in Isaiah 53. He's standing as our, he came to serve us. How does he serve? He serves as our substitute. He is our substitute before the Father, bearing our sin and shame and guilt so that we can be forgiven. He has come to serve us by giving of his life as a ransom. He's paid the debt we couldn't pay. You know, it's interesting. When you look at all the other religions of the world, they all have founders or they all have leaders and they've all come in some respect to be an example. None of them came to die. Some of them may have died, but their death didn't provide any hope for the people. They may have died, but what hope do you get from another dead human? And Jesus is the only founder of a religion that has come with the intent to die to save. He didn't die as an example for us. He died to accomplish something for us. He didn't die to make salvation a possibility for us. He came to make it an actuality that his death actually did something. It did bear a curse, thereby removing the curse from us. He did actually die for our sins, thereby really giving forgiveness to us. He died to bring reconciliation between us and God. So we there have, therefore have adoption now. He actually did something in his death. It wasn't to just show us how much he loved us, although you can't help but see his love, but he died to do something, to accomplish something. He had, a, he had a goal, he had an end, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Are you in the many? Is he your substitute? Do you look at Christ and say, he is the one for me that is standing before God? Are you in the many? It's by faith that we join the many. Uh, Christianity isn't about doing all these rules and regulations or somehow jumping on the self-reformation track and kind of, we're, we're, gonna, you know, we're coming up to New Year's and so we've got to make these resolutions. No one resolves to be Christian. You have to be born again from above. And you know that you've been born again because... You see him as your substitute. You want him as your substitute. You desire him to be your substitute. I hope that is for you. It doesn't take, it doesn't take massive intelligence to see that, yeah, I, I really am a sinner. I really can't finish out one day doing everything right. I, I do need one. That's what he's come to do. He's come to show us by serving us as our substitute, giving his life as a ransom for many. He has served us well. How do you know you're among the many? The faith, is it present? Last week I talked about how do we know that we're a sheep? How do we know that we're in his flock? Well, you know you're in his flock if you hear his voice and you follow him. The following doesn't make you part of the flock. It evidences you're part of the flock. How do you know that he has served you in this way? Well, because you want to serve. You don't always serve, and you don't serve well, but then you recognize that, and you repent, and you ask God to forgive you and to help you. 
That's how you know. You know, he says in John 15, I lay my life down for my friends. Don't you want to be a friend of Jesus? Being a friend of Jesus means you do what he says. Again, this isn't a call for perfection or for this mirror, you know, that God looks at us with some meritocracy. You know, these are the merits you've accrued. No, no, no. It's, God, I want to follow you because I love you. You gave your life for me. I'm just responding to your love. So two things. He challenges our view of greatness, but then he changes his view. Have I changed your view? In the explanation of this passage, do you now, maybe you've been working for 10, 20 years, maybe you've been laboring, and you've always seen greatness as being kind of the marks that the world would say, promotions and raises and accolades and accomplishments and plaques and banners. And so, Do you now see it as something different? I pray so. Because thirdly, the third point, if you were taking notes, is that he calls us to this greatness. So how do we walk in this? How can we be great? If he wants us to be great, how are we going to be great? Well, the first thing we've got to recognize is greatness does come through suffering. Now listen, I, I know, like you know, that the natural inclination of our heart is, is success, it's ease, it's, it's victory, it's a life without struggles. It's trying to avoid problems in life, and I get that that's a part of it. But we have to understand that greatness in the Christian faith is going to come through the sacrifice of self-denial and service. It's just, it just happens that way. Martin Luther said... The sinful nature always seeks to be glorified before it's crucified. It, greatness has to come. We have to see the cross comes before the crown. That, that there is suffering as part of the You know, the cross delivers us from sin. It doesn't deliver us from a life of servitude and serving others for the sake of God's glory. It involves suffering. To deny yourself what you want to do when you want to do it, it is not easy. Haven't I, I, I have to imagine, this has come out of my mouth more than I'm willing to tell you, I just want to do what I want to do. Have you ever said that? I just want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. That, that, that's just the nature of who we are as people. And, and, and when, you, when that comes out of your mouth, and then you say, God, that's who I am, that's why I need the gospel, give me the grace to serve in this manner right now. That's where the suffering comes in. It's the denying of ourselves. But I want you to understand that that suffering leads to glory. It leads to greatness. So Paul said, he said that these present momentary afflictions are achieving for us a glory that is beyond all comparison. It's beyond all comparison. I can't even tell you it's 10 times better than your best vacation. I can't tell you it's 1,000 times better than something else. It's beyond comparison. There's nothing here that I can say, oh, it's, it's a, a bazillion times better than that. There's no comparison to it. And the affliction Paul's talking about isn't just martyrdom that happens overseas. The suffering of the Christian is you and I putting ourselves to death for the sake of other people. It's, it, it's, it's that close to you. You don't need to go into hazardous zones to be afflicted in our following of Jesus. Just deny yourself for his glory. So we have to understand that greatness will come through suffering. One author said it this way. He says, they don't see that those who carry the cross and those alone shall receive the crown. We ask that God would make us holy. It's a good request indeed, but are we prepared to be sanctified by any process that God in his wisdom may call us to pass through? 
Are we ready to be purified by affliction, weaned from the world by bereavements, drawn near to God by losses, sickness, and sorrow? These are hard questions, but if we are not, our Lord might well say to us, you don't know what you're asking. That's why Jesus says, count the cost. To follow him, to follow his path will involve this form of greatness, self-denial, service, giving of oneself to another. That's the first thing in terms of his call. How do we be great? Well, we understand greatness comes through suffering. Secondly, I would say greatness comes through sacrificial service. It comes through sacrificial service, that kind of laying down our rights to serve others. Now, this, this could be, I could go on forever about how to apply this. It begins in the home, let's say, uh, just between husband and wife or with your roommates or with your friends. A, a willingness to put your your desires, even your needs, uh, and to use your time or your effort. Maybe just it's listening to someone. It may be something more practical, like a, a list to keep the home up that your wife may be asking you to do. It, it's those acts where we, where we put our desires for whatever we want to do, we put them to the side, we lay those down, and we go ahead and do what is right and helpful and gracious to the person in our lives. You know what sacrificial service is. I mean, we've all been children. I mean, you see it in parents. I mean, parents sacrifice. They do. They give up freedom with children. You give up time. You give up money. For 20 plus years, you labor saying no to yourself and yes to the children. I don't mean in some, I'm going to live vicariously through my child and I'm going to give the child everything they ever wanted and I never had. I, don't that's, I think that's wrong-headed. But, but just the nature of raising children, there is a constant no to yourself so as to care for these children, even with dollars and cents. Y you see that substitutionary work, don't you? The pouring out of yourself for the betterment, what makes healthy and strong children? It, it's good, loving, sacrificial leadership of the parents. It, it's a pouring out. It's, it's, like a, it's like being a little Christ to them. And you know, a lot of times they never see it. They don't say anything. Usually until they have children. And then lights and bells go off and they start realizing what sacrifice you made for them. That's when I think they see the gospel in large measure. But it's not just in your home, it's in this church. And to what degree do you sacrifice and serve one another? That is the covenant members of this church. I'm not just talking about your personal friends. I think it's wonderful to serve them. We all have a tendency. We see that God's common grace in the secular world that yeah, they can even serve those that they like. But how about serving those in your church? If everybody did in the same measure that you do for one another, how well would this church function? You know, serving one another could be discipling one another. I'd encourage you, even as we're still struggling to get together in 2021, maybe discipling another person. Uh, just, just moving and say, yeah, but I got a really busy schedule. This is what I'm talking about. It's a denial of yourself. It's a carving out, maybe taking out even a good thing from your life so as to put someone that might need to be encouraged just to read through the Bible with them. Just do it for three months or six months. Get together every week, every other week. Read through some passages of scriptures, talk about it, pray together. 
Now, you say, well, I don't know, though, you know, because a lot of wounded people in the church, and they've got a lot of needs, and I mean, that's really draining. You know, when you're with a person with a lot of needs, you, you know, it, it's, it's draining on you. you. You tend to look at your watch, and you wonder why the hour is taking so long. You tend to want to run away from those people because they're needy. But that's what he's talking about. Because when you're with a person who is struggling in life and they're troubled, and they can maybe be a little bit hyper-focused because of the nature of their problems pressing them down, we have to pour out our life. We lay out our lives for them. We listen to them. We love them. We bring scriptures to them. We pray for them. It is a giving. It's like a substitution. You are giving your life for them to help them. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. That's one way. Another way we can, we can kind of sacrificially serve, well, even wearing masks here. That, that is one way that we can serve people. You know, when the elders got together and we all agreed that it was the right thing to do, um, we knew there'd be frustration with it. Uh, the elders weren't making some grand declaration about we give tacit approval to the narrative of masks and the COVID virus. We weren't doing that. We just thought it was a simple way to express love to a person that might be compromised, we might not know it, or scared, and maybe they're young in the faith, they're not sure. We just thought it was an easy way to love. It doesn't define love for us. It doesn't sum up the total of love. It's just one way. Or, or it, it, it's a way to, to serve them. It's just one way. It's not the only way we serve one another, but it, it seems a simple way. Seems a simple way to do it. I, again, there's much talk about it. We're just, and, and you know what? Five years from now, they may come back and say, you know what? It wasn't really that big a deal. It didn't really help. Okay, that's no big deal. We're just seeking to serve. It, it's a way of laying down our rights, even if we don't necessarily agree with it. We're willing to, for your sake. That's what he's speaking about. Or it's even um, a single being with a married family, encouraging them in what they're doing, even though you may want to be married, or a, a family without children that wants children, rejoicing over those with children. These are all acts of self-denial uh, that we're seeking to promote the grace of God in lives of one another. How well do you serve one another in here? I mean, that is greatness. He says it right there, coming not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And then the third thing under this call, you know, says greatness comes through suffering, greatness comes through sacrificial service. And this greatness, though, can only come if it's inspired by the gospel. If it's inspired by the gospel. It's the consideration of Jesus Christ and all that he's done for us that fuels a right giving. You know, the scriptures say it's more blessed to give than to receive. There is a joy in giving. You do know that. I do want you to know, because a lot of people think, well, if I just get this, and if I get this, and if I get this, I'll be happy. You know, there was an article in the New York Times Magazine back in January of 2007. And the article is entitled Happiness 101. And this group of psychologists who studied in the field of positive psychology, and what that means is it, it, they're trying to, using empirical methods to determine what makes people happy and what makes people sad. And so in their research, what they found is, not surprisingly, uh, that those who give of themselves 
actually are happier than those who seek for themselves. Now, those who seek for themselves, uh, they say run into trouble called the hedonic treadmill. The hedonic treadmill is that you get on this treadmill of wanting to be pleasured, to be pleased, and it, it goes faster and faster. So the more you get, the more you like, and then you need more to get the same level of happiness, and you, go, you can never be happy. It's those who give themselves that are the happiest. But in their article, they never dealt with the reality that and giving of yourselves so that you can be happy is still selfish. It's only in understanding how Christ has given himself to us that we can actually give to others in a non-selfish way. Jonathan Edwards said this, if you don't believe in a gospel of grace, if you believe you're saved by your works, then you've never done anything for the love of others or for the sheer beauty of it. Unless you come into terms with the incredible nature of what Jesus Christ has done for us, all free, all because he's just unilaterally loved us, then we can't love others. See, we don't, we don't serve one another to pay him back. No, we look at how he has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now all my needs are cared for. Now I can serve. So the gospel has to fuel this kind of service, which leads to a greatness. So to be great, it's through suffering. It's through sacrificial service. It's inspired by the gospel. So before we just take a moment and, and consider this, let me just read to you a passage from Philippians. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is laying down his rights. That leads to greatness. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He will be great in our eyes because he served and he laid down his life. Let us follow him. Let's take a moment now and just ask God to bring conviction or clarity to your heart. Grace to walk in this. And I'll pray for us in just a moment.